listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 52. Um, as always, we bring you somewhat depressing news from around the world. Um, starting in Turkey, on Tuesday, a coal mine in Turkey exploded, killing at least 245 miners and trapping perhaps 120 more in what may be the nation's worst ever industrial disaster. The International Labor Organization has ranked Turkey third worst in the world for worker deaths in 2012, and demonstrators have taken to the streets in Istanbul to protest the government's privatization of the mines in the first place and lack of concern for miners' safety. Closer to home, in West Virginia, two coal miners died on Monday night in a collapse at Patriot Coal's Brody No. 1 mine. Um, In October, that same mine was one of three coal mines added to a pattern of violations list for repeatedly breaking federal health and safety regulations over the previous year. I know you're surprised to find out that it had been cited for 253 serious health and safety violations. This means, of course, that it is among the worst in the nation, even in an industry that, well, has a lot of problems, and that this meant it should have gotten extra scrutiny from regulators, though apparently not enough to save Gary P. Hensley of Chapmanville and Eric D. Legg of Twilight. Patriot Coal is also a company that the United Mine Workers of America won a settlement against after it spun off from Peabody Energy. UMWA had argued that the company was created specifically in order to go bankrupt, thus freeing Peabody of any obligation to all of the retired miners. The settlement ultimately included more than $400 million to start a health care fund for retired miners, but clearly the company has not been giving the attention it should be to the health and safety of its miners. We should, of course, note that mining is, yes, it's a very dangerous industry. However, there is no reason for it to be as dangerous as it is. And... This is a problem whether it's in Turkey or right around the corner. Yes, and closer to home in another uh, hazard-prone <laughs> industry, but this time in the service sector. At JFK, LaGuardia, and New York airports, contracted service workers who are cleaners, wheelchair attendants, and other workers who are doing low-wage jobs in these airports recently voted to unionize and affiliate with the local 32BJ of the Service Employees International Union. They are one of the most powerful unions in the city and have been on a campaign at a number of airports nationwide to raise awareness around the need for solid, decent working standards, sustainable wages, and benefits for workers who are increasingly reliant on the private subcontracting industry to do jobs that uh, used to be done by more stable forms of uh, official employment. So with these potentially new unionized workers, that would give a lot more leverage to some of these several thousand service workers at these airports. Um, Currently, there's a patchwork of different labor standards uh, governing their working conditions, depending on who they contract with. But the major contracting firms that work with the major airlines are paying workers as little as about $8 an hour, barely enough to live on anywhere in the country, much less one of the most expensive cities in the world. And uh, it's a pretty big step forward. They signed their union cards at Riverside Church, which is a pretty big social justice uh, ministry here in New York. And they have 
some considerable union uh, and community backing. So we'll see where this campaign goes, and it might set a precedent for um, airports and airport communities around the country. And if SeaTac in Seattle is any example, these are sort of the last vestiges of what you might call, you know, a, a company town in the country. And um, there's a platform there to do some serious labor organizing. So we'll keep you posted. Yeah, imagine a strike at the airport could do some serious damage, huh? Yep. In any case, also right here in New York on May 1st, May Day, for those of you who, yes, are paying attention, a group of teachers at International High School in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn announced that they would refuse to administer the English Language Arts Performance Assessment Exam to their students, over 95% of whom are English language learners and all of whom are recent immigrants. The decision came against the background of the new mayor and school's chancellor who claimed to be opposed to such an intense focus on standardized testing, and, of course, an increased movement of parents opting their students out of these tests, as we've reported several times on this podcast. It also comes against the background of a new contract between that mayor and the United Federation of Teachers, the union to which these teachers belong. That contract is will span nine years, but five of those years have already gone past while Mayor Bloomberg, um, billionaire Mayor Bloomberg, was not interested in having a contract with the teachers. Um, It includes retroactive pay. It includes almost no changes to a teacher evaluation deal that was imposed statewide by an arbitrator last year. And more, the caucus within the union to which four of the international high school teachers refusing to give that test belong, is urging teachers to vote down that contract and demand better. Meanwhile, in Massachusetts, teacher frustration with testing and other predatory education reform tactics has led to the surprise election of reformer Barbara Mataloni, the candidate of Educators for a Democratic Union. Predatory reform is Mataloni's term and one that I've adopted since I interviewed her last February about her campaign, as I think it perfectly encapsulates what the the school reform movement actually does to schools. Um, And so the teachers' union movement continues to shake things up as parents and students are beginning to join them in rejecting the predatory reform agenda. You might have noticed that the Golden Arches, the uh, global symbol of fast food hegemony, has become one of the most recognizable icons of uh, commercial exploitation and unhealthy food around the world. But now it is an emblem of labor protest that is making waves in many different nations, it turns out. The fast food workers movement that began in 2012 right here in New York City just recently announced that they were going global with uh, the fast food global campaign. That's hashtag fast food global. So right now, uh, there are currently labor protests planned in more than 30 countries, as well as wildcat strikes and other protests going on in about 150 U.S. cities. And this is going to be marking the first time that there has been a real coordinated global effort to organize workers in the fast food industries from Morocco to Japan to Brazil to Denmark. And they had a conference recently, last week, that sort of announced this new initiative and brought together workers from around the world to compare their working conditions. And they found a lot of common ground. And they also found some useful lessons to apply to their own local organizing efforts, uh, recognizing that the circumstances that low-wage workers face are pretty different, but also they face many of the same struggles. For instance, in Britain, the UK fast food workers are complaining that many of them are on these things called zero-hours contracts. And if anyone is familiar with that term, you will see 
see a lot of similarities between zero-hours contracts and the kind of on-call scheduling that many uh, fast food workers and other retail and service industry workers rely on here in the United States. So whatever you call it, it's workers getting screwed. And right now they do not, of course, um, have any real sort of serious uh, agenda for starting a, a global union or anything like that, but they are taking coordinated steps to speak in a collective voice. On May 15th, there will be a global strike day, and this is going to go on uh, around the world, and we will be following it up. And we have a little bit of audio from the conference last week that announced this global initiative. Vinimos acá a Nueva York a la primera reunión de la Utah para mejorar la calidad de trabajo de todos los trabajadores de comidas rápidas en solidaridad a nuestros compañeros. When I heard about the strike in US, I was actually very surprised because in Denmark where I came come from, um, we don't have strike because we actually have a good agreement with McDonald's. I heard about the wage theft and, you know, breaks and all of this sort of stuff and it's kind of exactly the same as what was happening in New Zealand. We are fighting for secure hours in the workplace, we're fighting for $15 minimum wage and we're fighting for more regular breaks. Las horas, el sueldo, las vacaciones, tener una hora social, eh, contar con ayuda de un sindicato para que el trabajador no se sienta solo en la empresa. In Denmark we have uh, an agreement with McDonald's. Our salary is on $21, and if you are under 18, it's on $15. My name is Elizabeth Renee, and I've been dealing with the McDonald's industry for four years. $8 is not enough. Between billing, transportation, and food, there's no way possible that we can pay for all the necessities that we need. In the fast food industry, they make a lot of money. At the end of the day, the workers are the ones that make the money for the company. To make all this better, to make McDonald's and all other fast food places to be a better place to work, I really think we have to unite. And if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. If you don't stand up and fight back, then nothing will change. We have to organize everyone. We have to be stronger together. And that was an anticipation of the May 15th rally that happened Thursday that marked a new wave of strikes going on in New York City, across the nation, and around the world. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And this week, we bring you an interview with Sadeh Gebrselassi, staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project. She has been doing a lot of research around the minimum wage, minimum wage legislation, and the plight of low-wage workers, especially those in the fast food industry. Here's what she had to say about the difference between good jobs and bad jobs in the recovery and the plight of today's low-wage workers. Um, as you know, there's been a flurry of activity on the state and local level to boost the minimum wage through uh, local and state legislation, as well as things like living wage ordinances and other types of local initiatives. Um, all this is going on in part in response to the stagnation of Congress, which has, of course, uh, 
refused to budge significantly on the minimum wage, which still hovers at $7.25 an hour. Um, a lot of your recent work around minimum wage policies has explored why this is not so easy as it seems, and you work specifically around um, issues of preemption laws and kind of the political forces behind them. Can you elaborate a little bit on what exactly it means to preempt a raise to the minimum wage and what that actually means when you have a lot of local uh, momentum for an initiative to raise the minimum wage, which we is enormously popular across the country. Sure. So, like you said, the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, and it's been $7.25 since 2009. Um, luckily, states are free to raise the minimum wage above the federal level. So, even as you know, there's effort ongoing to raise the federal minimum wage, um, which is absolutely crucial. States are stepping into the void and raising the minimum wage above the federal level. So. Uh, in a couple of years, there will be 25 states that will have minimum wages above the federal level, assuming that it stays at 7.25. So, what can cities do? Because you're right, there's a lot of momentum on the local level to raise wages. There are a lot of cities that have the power to raise the minimum wage above the state level, and we've seen this particularly in places like California, where the state minimum wage is $8 an hour, but cities like San Francisco have a minimum wage of $10.74. And in Washington, where Seattle is poised to enact a $15 an hour minimum wage, even as the state's minimum wage is $9.32. The problem is that there are some states that have passed laws that basically prohibit cities and counties in their state from passing minimum wages that are higher than the state level, and that's a real problem. One, because you're stifling the organizing and momentum that's happening around raising wages, and two, because just as across our country, cost of living vary from state to state, so too within a state, cost of living vary from, um, vary from city to city, county to county. And so we are starting to see campaigns where cities and counties aren't allowed to do that to change that. Most notably in New York, there's a very, very active campaign to give cities and counties in New York the power to raise the minimum wage on the local level. And you can imagine how important it is um, in places like New York City, for example, which has perhaps the highest cost of living in the country, but has a minimum wage of $8 an hour. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what's going on in New York? Because I think for some of our local listeners, that um, might be a particularly fruitful issue. We've actually seen a number of protests going on just in the past few weeks, and actually a new bill that is being proposed, I believe, in Albany that might act movement around this. And I guess New York is a little bit unique in the sense that this is um, this is basically regarding kind of a home rule issue. And it was um, a, a, basically um, the, the product of a kind of a legal quirk in, in a court ruling. Is that right? Yeah. So unlike, you know, New York is unusual in that the fact that cities and counties in New York can't enact a higher local minimum wage isn't the result of anything that the state legislature in Albany did. Um, Albany has never passed a law saying that cities and counties can't do it. What happened is um, 50 years ago, there was a court decision that basically said that New York State's minimum wage law didn't allow cities and counties to do it. Um, you know, we think it's a poorly reasoned law, and if it came out today, it might come out differently. But regardless, that is the court decision that we're stuck with. And so 
all that needs to happen to fix that is for Albany, our state legislature and our governor, Governor Cuomo, to sign and pass a bill that basically says, you know, cities and counties are free to raise the minimum wage above the state level. And so there's a bill in Albany that would do just that. It's a very short bill, um, you know, five sentences, um, but it would really unleash and unlock um, a lot of power to address, you know, soaring poverty rates, the fact that millions of workers in New York, almost 3 million workers in New York State make less than $15 an hour. We have the highest gap between the rich and the poor of any other state in the country. And so giving cities and counties the power to enact a higher local minimum wage will go a long way towards addressing those problems. Right. And I guess it's important to note also that this is not just an upstate downstate thing, as there are so many issues in Albany, but, you know, this would affect, uh, you know, smaller counties and cities across the state, right? Exactly. Every city and county across the state would have the power, if they wanted to, to raise their local minimum wage. And so this is something that would directly benefit every single working New Yorker. Right. And so and we talk about these local initiatives I mean, it's clear, as we said, that New York City in particular is ridiculously expensive. It costs a lot more to live here than it does to live in many towns upstate or in most other states in this country. At the same time, we're seeing this spread of these movements of the low-wage workers um, nationally and internationally. It seems also designed to pressure at the national level, it does seem important to actually act on that level because not every city is going to have a nice progressive um, city council. Um, Can you talk about the the need for action on a federal level, even if cities like New York can raise their minimum wage? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the action on the city and local level, or state and local level, you're absolutely right, does not replace the need for Congress to raise the federal minimum wage. Um, You know, historically, the action on the state level has really, like the momentum has really built toward finally getting the federal government to act to raise the minimum wage. And we're seeing it now because so many states are taking the step and passing the minimum wage on their own and putting pressure on the federal government to do the same. We saw it happen most recently before now um, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, where for a decade, um, from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s, the federal minimum wage was stuck at 5.15 an hour, um, you know, and so obviously every year that went by, workers effectively were seeing a pay cut because the cost of living was obviously going up every year, but the minimum wage was staying the same. And so we saw um, at least half a dozen ballot initiatives in red and purple states too that passed overwhelmingly to raise the minimum wage. We saw many state legislatures take action, and that finally prompted Congress in the 2007 under George W. Bush um, to pass the minimum wage, raising it gradually to 725, which is where we are today. So I think that the state and local activity definitely builds momentum for a federal increase. I think we're at a point now where everybody recognizes that $15,000 a year, which is what the federal minimum wage gets you, assuming full-time work, is simply not enough to make ends meet. I think people know that it's a total myth that minimum wage workers are teenagers using their earnings for, you know, going to the movies on Friday night because people are themselves making minimum or low wages. They have neighbors who are, they have family members who are, they understand what's happened in our economy where we've hemorrhaged jobs that pay decent wages and what's fueling job growth today are these low wage 
jobs that are, you know, incredibly difficult to make ends meet on. And so that's why you see whenever you look at polling of who supports the minimum wage, you find overwhelming support among everybody across uh, across the political spectrum. You see majority Republican support. If you poll small businesses, you find that a majority of them support raising the minimum wage. So the consensus among the public is crystal clear. And the question and the challenge is how do you get that consensus to actually translate to movement on the federal level? You know, unfortunately, given an up or down vote, so there was a vote last month in Congress on minimum wage. Um, so it got filibustered. So it got 55 votes, um, but it needed 60 in order to move towards full debate, which is the next step in getting it passed. But it didn't cross that 60 vote threshold. But the fact that 55 senators voted in support of it shows that, you know, if you could just get it voted on, it would it it would pass. And it's, you know, it's just it's very challenging in a political environment where, you know, electeds aren't listening to what their voters right. Or where majority rule doesn't actually mean anything. Exactly, exactly. Where and where you have you know really tremendous influence of lobbyists like the National Restaurant Association and other groups that are so adamantly opposed to raising the minimum wage, contrary to what the majority wants. So, mm-hmm. and just to clarify some of the research around this, I mean, there are always various debates going on around what the actual. Um, economic impact of raising the minimum wage would be. And, uh, you know, some of the figures I've seen bandied about often highlight uh, the fact that maybe, you know, fewer workers these days are, um, you know, directly affected by a minimum wage increase, which is to say that, you know, maybe only a relatively small sliver of the workforce is actually working for that $7.25 an hour. Can you talk about kind of the ripple effect of raising the minimum wage? And, you know, if it is massively popular, I'm, I'm sure that many of the people who support raising the minimum wage are not themselves uh, supporting minimum wage. So, uh, you know, what's in it for uh, the rest of everyone? <laughs> First of all, if you if you look at the impact of raising the minimum wage, um, it's true that, you know, it's probably a small number of people who make exactly $7.25 an hour. Part of that is because so many states have minimum wages higher than $7.25, even if it's only $8, like, like New York. So, you know, you really have to look at who makes the minimum wage, taking into account all these different state minimum wage rates. That said, if you look at who would benefit from raising the minimum wage, um, the Economic Policy Institute did a study analyzing the federal, the, the Congressional Fair Minimum Wage Act, which would raise the minimum wage from 7.25 to 10.10 an hour, and it found that 28 million workers in this country would benefit. About 18 million would be directly affected because they make somewhere between 7.25 and 10.10. Another um, eight or nine million would see just above 1010, maybe a dollar above 1010. And so they would see a boost as employers adjusted pay scales upward. That is a massive number. That is a sizable percentage of our workforce. And that just goes to show you how low wage our workforce has become. So what does it mean for 28 million workers in this country to see an increase in their paycheck? Well, one, it means that local businesses will have uh, more consumer dollars because we know that, you know, unlike somebody who's very wealthy who will just take whatever additional earnings they have and, you know, save it or 
low-wage workers, when, when they get more money in their pockets, they will go out and spend it immediately because they have to on basic necessities in their local communities. And that helps stimulate the consumer spending that is really key to our continued economic recovery. And so the same Economic Policy Institute report found that raising the minimum wage to 1010 would generate about $22 billion in new consumer spending, which is not insignificant. I think we also have to think about what it means for workers who don't have enough money to support themselves and are, you know, for, forced to turn to earned income tax credit and food stamps and other income supports to make ends meet. You know, those are costs that are borne by the taxpayer. Um, these are incredibly vital programs. So I just want to reiterate that, you know, these are incredibly vital public support programs. But we shouldn't be allowing companies like Walmart and McDonald's to basically use our taxpayer dollars to subsidize the rock bottom wages that they're paying their workers, especially since these are companies that can afford to be so much better. And so when you ask, you know, what's in it for somebody that doesn't make the minimum wage or doesn't make low wages, you know, apart from just the fact that you would hope that you would want your neighbor to, you know, also be able to earn a decent living and support their family. More concretely, it also just means that, you want to be part of an economy that works for everybody. You don't want your taxpayer dollars to subsidize, you know, these low wages that are being paid by these big corporations that can afford to do so much better. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because we, you know, there are lots of specific research that um, organizations like yours do that do bring out sort of statistics that people haven't heard before. But a lot of this general information has been out there for a while, and it's clear that there are certain people who are not going to be convinced by statistics. One of the things that I like about NELP and other organizations like yours is that you do work hand in hand with worker movements. Mm -hmm. So you use your research to support the workers that are organizing on the ground. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of partnership and how that works? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, here's the, I think, I think the general point and takeaway to all this work is that, you know, all of all of this research is to be effective, it can't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. What is, you know, what is going to transform workers' lives and raise living standards isn't, you know, research and legal research as much as, you know, that would put me out of a job if it, but, you know, it, it, it really is, um, worker organizing and building worker power. And if you look at what happened in Seattle, you know, we could talk all day about how important $15 an hour, $15 minimum wage is, but without the energy that was created by the fast food strikes and by other low-wage worker organizing, you know, Seattle would not have enacted a $15 an hour minimum wage. And even, even the $15 an hour, that that number wasn't on anybody's radar or on anybody's list a couple of years ago, but now that has become the number that people are shooting for. And that's not because of research and, you know, research and writing. It's, it's because that number has been put out there by the thousands of workers that have, you know, done the incredibly brave thing of walking off the job and of, you know, protesting unfair working conditions. And that I think is what, that is what moves people in the end, um, because I think statistics, as important as they are, and facts, as important as they are, 
at the end of the day, people are pretty dug in to their position, regardless of what facts you give them. But what moves them is actually seeing um, some sort of personal and brave movement forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think probably even in 2012, if you had proposed a $15 minimum wage, people would have scoffed at it, right? Yeah. I mean, that would have yeah. sounded ridiculous to people, and now it's part of our national conversation. So exactly. a lot can change with some concerted organizing in just a few months. Um, sort of drilling down to fast food workers and some of the research that NELP has done around that, um, you talk about um, the structure of the industry and how, in many ways, it represents kind of the the quintessential um, aspects of of low-wage work and how difficult it is for people who are stuck at the bottom of the wage scale to really rise up. Can you talk about not just, um, you know, uh, compensation levels, but how jobs are structured in this industry to basically, you know, keep people at um, at that level of economic hardship for as long as possible? Sure, sure. So, yeah, we did a report looking at the fast food industry, specifically looking at mobility within the fast food industry. And the reason why we did this report was because when the fast food workers started organizing and going out on strike, um, some of the pushback from opponents of raising their wages was like, oh, well, if you work hard, you can move up and then you'll get a raise that way. You know, you'll become a manager. You can own your own franchise one day. So, you know, nobody stays in the and you know, the median wage for a frontline worker in the fast food industry industry is eight and change. So they're saying nobody stays at these jobs where you make eight fifty, eight eighty an hour. Um, and so, you know, when you looked at the workers going out on strike though and you interviewed them and you were, you know, listening to workers who had been working at the same fast food joint for fifteen years and were still making nine dollars an hour, um, you're like, oh well, that doesn't add up. So we did a report that looked at the structure and what we found is that the fast food industry is an incredibly flat industry in terms of upward mobility. Um, just 2.2% of the jobs are managerial and even those managerial jobs only pay an average wage of about $13 an hour. So even if you make it to manager, you're still not making a lot of money. And if you look at the vast majority of the positions, the frontline positions that compromise almost 90% of the jobs in the industry, the average wages for those workers is around $9 an hour. So, you know, the takeaway is no matter how hard you work, no matter how good of a worker you are, it's just unrealistic to think that the way that the industry is currently structured and the wages that they currently pay, you're just not going to be able to earn a decent income. The other thing that we also looked at was responding to the claim about, oh, well, you can become a franchise, you know, you can buy your own franchise. Um, well, it takes a lot of money to buy one of the franchises, right? So, we, you know, it takes anywhere from half a million to a million dollars in assets. And if you're making $9 an hour, it will be very difficult for you to save that kind of money. So, you know, it's the takeaway from all this then is, well, if this is the structure of industry, if there just aren't enough jobs at the top, then we have to focus on how do we make the jobs that are in the industry decent paying jobs um, and jobs that you can actually support a family on. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you, just looking at, in terms of just structural changes within that industry to make these better jobs, I mean, you also, um, uh, you know, found that, um, you know, uh, uh, things like, you know, benefits, paid sick days, other things, other 
basic uh, safeguards and, and uh, job security protections are basically non-existent in a lot of these jobs. And, and I guess this is sort of the other component of the fast food workers movement, which is the call for a union. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a sense of what exactly a union would do? Because I mean, that, that to me seems like a, you know, a, a, whole, a whole new sort of political level of giving workers real uh, leverage and power in their workplaces beyond right. just raising the wage. Exactly, exactly. And I'm glad you flagged that that way because the fast food workers demand is $15 and a union. It actually isn't about the minimum wage, even though, you know, all of the, all of the organizing that the workers have done has given tremendous momentum to campaigns to raise the minimum wage. But fundamentally, it is about being able to organize without fear of retaliation. And the reason why, you know, unions are so important <laughs> is because they don't just affect um, working conditions in that one workplace. You know, back in the 1950s, when our country was 35% unionized, that had an impact not just on workers in that unionized workplace, but it had effect on pay and working conditions across industries. Because when you get to a point where union jobs have saturated that industry, then non-union employers are kind of forced to adjust because they have to be on the same playing field as those employers that, you know, are doing right, right by their workers. So we've now fallen in this day and age to, I think, less than 7% union innovation rates in the private sector. And we're seeing the direct effect of that in many ways, including wages that for most of the American workforce have stagnated or are on the decline because the key thing about unions, they bring more power to workers in the workplace. I mean, you know, the bargaining relationship between employers and workers without a union is incredibly unequal. And you can just imagine, I mean, you know, imagine just going to your employer and asking for things on your on your own um, without any protection to what will happen to you if your employer gets mad at what you're requesting, right? I mean, there's um, there's there's a reason why People say unions brought you the 40-hour work week and unions did this for you because they have had a tremendous impact on leveling the bargaining relationship between employers and employees. And so the demand for 15 and a union is a way to, I think, and, you know, I'm just speaking a little bit on the on the outside, but making sure that once you get 15, it's not just about 15, right? It is about all of the other issues that affect your workplace life. So whether it's scheduling or rest breaks or um, being treated decently. I mean, there are so many things besides pay and benefits that impact your life in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, the uh, the issue of, you know, who works these jobs, I think, is also really important here because, um, in a way, the the fast food industry um, mirrors a, a lot of the sort of demographics of the low-wage workforce in general. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how race and gender factor into, um, you know, the, the, the particular struggles that these workers face. For instance, I think many, uh, many people might be surprised to hear that so many fast food workers are um, not just the primary breadwinners for their families, but they are single parents as well. And, you know, how do single moms fare, particularly when their job won't even allow them full-time hours, much less things like, you know, taking off uh, time for uh, paid vacation or childcare or healthcare? Yeah. 
So there are a few things in that. You know, one, fast food workers, um, like low-wage workers across our economy, are adults, like I said. I mean, I think in the fast food industry, 70% of fast food workers are adults. Many of them are supporting families, like you flagged. And they are dealing not only with, you know, what what a lot of people call involuntary part-time status, where many of these workers would like to work full-time hours, but their employers aren't giving them enough hours, and so they're relegated to this part-time status, which means that they can't support their families. And they're also dealing with the fact that many of their employers don't tell them what their schedules are necessarily. You know, there's there's this big issue in many low-wage sectors, including fast food, where you just don't know what your schedule is going to look like week to week, and your employer will just schedule you for a couple hours and then, you know, call you in at the drop of a hat to come in if there's more work. And so you can imagine what that means for somebody who's the primary caregiver, that she or he will never know, will never be able to arrange childcare, will never be able to go back to school and, you know, try to get a degree, get a different job, that they'll never be able to have a personal life um, outside of just always being on call because you want to get these more hours because you're not getting enough hours, right? So so it's this real, I mean, beyond just the fact that it's erratic scheduling and you're not getting paid enough, there's real stress to this type of work environment that I, I think can't be overstated that has an impact on the health of a family. Um, when, when you don't know how much money you're going to make the following week, you can't plan a weekly budget. You can't go to the grocery store and figure out, you know, what, what you can buy that week for you and your kids. Um, and it doesn't have to be like this. And I think part of what the strikes are doing and what all the low wage worker organizing is doing is putting a face not just on the wages that these workers are being paid, but on the other effects that this type of work is having on them and on their kids um, and on their health and on their mental health. And, you know, so I think a roundabout way, I guess, of trying to answer your question. I think that there are lots of things that you don't, that it's hard to really understand about the lives of these workers until, and that's, and that's one reason why I think the strikes have been so significant because there's been so much coverage. Right. I mean, people seem endlessly fascinated with the fact that these people um, have real lives and right. actual families. It's right, amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They, they actually, you know, deal with the same stuff that, you know, everyone else deals with. <laughs> Amazing. NELP has a recent report out on the low-wage jobs during the recovery, um, if we can call it a recovery, which, you know, it hasn't been a recovery for most of us. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the findings of this report and why this underscores, again, the importance of this low-wage worker organizing? Sure. So the findings of the report, and it's and it's actually a um, update to a report we did a couple of years ago, looking at what happened to jobs during the recession and what's happened during the recovery. And both reports found this very disturbing trend of when the recession hit, we lost jobs across occupations: higher wage, mid wage, low wage. But we disproportionately lost jobs higher wage and mid-wage um, occupations. So, but when the recovery started and we are, you know, supposedly started, <laughs> um, officially started and job growth started, what we saw was that the jobs that dominated 
job growth, um, that disproportionately fuels job growth and continues to do so today are low-wage jobs. So jobs in retail and fast food and home health care, you know, a lot of the jobs that can't be offshored, but where median pay is often less than $10 an hour. So what this means basically is that we are replacing decent-paying jobs with bad-paying jobs. I mean, that is the takeaway. And that and that, to be honest, was a trend that started happening even before the recession. Um, but the recession really accelerated it. And the recovery, for sure, has shown us that it's not going away. And if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics projections over what type of occupations are going to be growing the fastest over the next decade, they continue to be these jobs, especially home home healthcare, for example, which which makes total sense because our population is aging and there's and there's going to be, you know, an an even greater need for those positions. But again, those are jobs that pay very, very low wages. And so one of the key reasons why raising the minimum wage is so important now is because more and more people are going to be making minimum and low wage jobs. Um, and so, you know, we have to get out of this um I mean Part of a healthy economic recovery, it, it seems to me, is making sure that people have enough money to spend, you know, like actual money. So not, you know, using their house as a credit card or, you know, like finding ways to make sure that people have actual money, concrete money to spend so that we don't get into the situation where we were before the recession hit. And so how do we do that? Well, we need to raise wages for the millions of workers that are whose pay scales are effectively set by whatever the minimum wage happens to be. And then beyond that, I think this is something else that the fast food strikes are showing, is that we have to make labor law more relevant and make it easier for workers to organize. Because, you know, historically, there have been two key ways that wages have gone up in this country. They've gone up through raising the minimum wage because that, you know, raises the wage floor. And then they've gone up through unionization, as, as I was talking about earlier. And so the fact that there are so few unionized workers in this country has, has had a real impact on wages and working conditions. And, you know, we've seen with some of the stories around Walmart workers going out on strike, what some employers can do and will do um, without fear of consequence when workers try to organize and come together and bargain collectively. You know, there's the real fear of retaliation. Um, there, you know, labor law is oftentimes insufficient to protect workers when they try to organize. And so, and, you know, to be honest, sometimes the public debate around unions and around organizing just seems to totally forget the importance that unions have um, in the country. So I think we need to think about both of these things as we move forward if we really want an economic recovery that benefits everybody and that is sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The issue about um, this trend of, uh, you know, good jobs increasingly being uh, replaced by what we might call bad jobs, as you said, it predates the recession and will likely continue for some time. Um, and it sounds like, you know, raising the minimum wage might be kind of, you know, a backstop to maybe, you know, stem the bleeding and maybe um, hopefully lead towards, uh, you know, a, a better, a, a fuller recovery for the people at the bottom of the economy. But um, I mean, 
mean, beyond that, how do you actually reverse this trend of jobs just getting worse and worse and quality of life eroding for um, the, you know, huge swath of the population that is, you know, below the very uh, top income bracket? I mean, it sounds like we need other policies in place to really kind of try to change the distribution of wealth in society <laughs> with like, say, like a more progressive tax code or right, right, like right. I mean, in terms of there are there are a lot of things that that we could do. We could invest more in our public education system. We could invest more in our infrastructure so that we could, you know, create jobs that pay decent wages. You know, rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. We could, you know, do what the I don't know if you guys remember in the the recovery package did and send more money to the states so they can hire more teachers and firefighters. You know, jobs that pay the decent wages and that we actually need. Um, you know, there are much better uses for our public dollars than continued um, tax cuts to the wealthy. And we can think, I mean, but I think, I guess to end on a on a high note, I think that um, these things are starting, I think there are very few people who think that the current system is sustainable in terms of everything, right? So wages and, um, you know, just general living conditions for too many people in this in this country. And so... You know, we're, we kicked off this interview talking about the fast food strike and the minimum wage because, you know, I work on that and um, there's so much activity and organizing happening. But I think the general is there in many other areas. And I think on the worker stuff specifically, and I'll end on a high note here, I mean, the fact that Seattle is going to have a $15 an hour minimum wage two years after these, I mean, it won't take effect in two years, but you know, enacted two years after these strikes took place is, or started to take place is kind of incredible. Um, and that was only two years. And so I think that we can look at those types of examples um, to give us energy to go forward and also to show us that, look, this, this can be done when you have movements that are building worker power, building a community power. And that was today, Gabriel Selassie at the National Employment Law Project. And now it's time for our favorite portion of the show. Arg! I wish I'd written that. Well, arg over a two-week period means that these should be even better, right? Uh, double arg. Double arg. <laughs> no. um, so the piece that I argued about this week um, is called Vivian Mayer and the Problem of Difficult Women by Rose Lichter-Mark at The New Yorker. And so the piece is a review of a documentary about Vivian Mayer, who was a nanny and a street photographer whose work was discovered, and you should hear the giant air quotes around that word, by a dude at a sale in Chicago in 2007. The review, of course, is always also a story about work and women and art. The central question of the film, which I should say I have not seen, seems to be that Mayer, whose work has impressed everyone who has seen it since it has been, quote, discovered and displayed all over the place, mostly making money for somebody who is not Vivian Mayer because Vivian Mayer is no longer alive. Vivian Mayer seemed to have no interest in being a professional photographer and instead spent her time working as a nanny and taking photographs in her spare time, or indeed, while she was working. Um, It seems to have been impossible for people to imagine that she could have A, needed the money and thus gotten a job as a nanny, and B, not really cared about fame. Lichtermark writes, In the film, domestic work is placed in opposition to artistic ambition as if the two are incompatible. But are they? 
Street photographers are often romanticized as mystical flaneurs who inconspicuously capture life qua life, who are in the world but not of it. The help, like the street photographer, is supposed to be invisible. Menial tasks like childcare have historically been relegated to working class women who give up domestic autonomy to live in intimate proximity to their employers while remaining employees. She continued, both the photographer and the nanny evoke fantasies of invisibility that rely on the erasure of real labor, but for opposite ends. Women's work is diminished and ignored, while the historically male artist's pursuit is valorized as a creative gift. Perhaps the nanny could actually be the perfect person to photograph the world unnoticed. Maybe the very thing that made people hire her as a nanny, her watchfulness, her alertness to human tragedies in those moments of generosity and sweetness, as the photographer Joel Meyerowitz puts it in the film, made her the artist we know she was. Was Mayer an artist? Did she secretly long to be discovered? Was there something wrong with her for not wanting to be discovered? What if the answer was that she simply didn't care that the women's work she did was actually work that she enjoyed and that paid her enough to give her the freedom to take photographs for her own pleasure? Right. And my ARG for this week was also um, a set of reviews of other stuff. Um, but, uh, and uh, unfortunately, I, I've not actually read the book uh, Capital by Thomas Piketty from cover to cover, but it is on my list, just like it's on everyone else's list. And I decided to uh, do a little bit of cheating this week and look at some of the notable reviews that I think uh, are good essays that kind of stand alone um, in their own right. So uh, one of the first pieces that I flagged on this was uh, The Problem with Thomas Piketty by Thomas Frank. Um, and uh, the subtitle is Capital Destroys Right-Wing Lies, But There's One Solution It Forgets. And this is Thomas Frank talking about how Piketty's uh, analysis might be spot on in terms of identifying some of the uh, macroeconomic trends that have defined the accumulation of wealth and the growth of inequality over the last uh, couple of centuries. But uh, he falls short on his political analysis, which um, is actually, you know, one of the key things that might be more relevant or that might make Piketty's work indeed more relevant to the ongoing uh, debates that we're having in the U.S. about, uh, you know, the minimum wage, industrial policy, um, the recession, reform of the financial industry, etc. So I thought that it was a good dissection of what Piketty maybe doesn't get around to in his book, but might be useful in terms of generating meaningful conversations around what might otherwise be, you know, a, a relatively accessibly written but fairly dense academic work. And uh, Frank notes that um, when labor is strong, our composers write things like fanfare for the common man and blue-collar workers buy cars and boats and snowmobiles. When labor is weak, we bow down before job creators and McMansions sprout like mushrooms after the rainstorm. And I think he's identifying here some peculiarly American things that maybe Piketty didn't pick up on in terms of how culturally we view the working class, we view um, work in general, and of course, Frank's big bone to pick with Piketty is that he doesn't talk enough about organized labor. So, um, you know, that is another useful aspect of this debate that really needs to be foregrounded, I think, if we are to, uh, you know, move forward and accept this idea of inequality being a growing trend and then try to think of 
possible solutions that can emerge, you know, within our own time um, that kind of militate against that. Another piece that I thought was useful in this regard that uh, Sarah Jaffe pointed me to was Robert Kuttner's What Piketty Leaves Out, and sort of going along in the same vein, but uh, Robert Kuttner, being a student of history, kind of looks at the American historical context and how the post-war boom and, and essentially the, the war economy during World War II was instrumental both in the uh, economic growth that we saw in the late 1940s and 1950s and that sort of trajectory of economic development that became the basis for what we now consider the peak of the American middle class and also created the kinds of inequalities that we are now dealing with. And so he talks in, in many ways about how the that initial stimulus had some of the right structural implements in place, but ultimately was not sustainable. Um, what he leaves out, of course, is what the solution now is. Of course, we can't keep on relying on wars and economic crises to be driving innovative economic policy solutions. So that leaves open this giant question mark in an age of inequality as well as a dramatic technological progress, you know, what can we do? And one of the things that Robert Kuttner focuses on is the rise of organized labor, particularly in the post-war economy, and how it managed to promote both economic growth and a leveling of uh, certain forms of inequality that were pervasive in the economy even at that time. And he looks at the combination of public investment as well as organized labor power that was able to both raise living standards for a huge swath of the working class at the time, but also deploy federal resources, federal stimulus, and also public investments in new kinds of technology to kind of marshal some of that energy both uh, that came from organized labor and from uh, the dramatic you know, need for some form of development in the aftermath of World War II. One of the quotes that I pulled from there that I thought was particularly useful was where he talks about the need for public investment in order to create both you know, good jobs as well as sustainable economic gains. Private capital is myopic when it comes to long-term pursuit of technological breakthroughs. That's why so many of the core innovations of the post-war era were the fruit of patient public capital and public risk-taking. Is it only during depressions and wars that public investment can make up for private market failures, or can public capital increase productivity growth, employment, and expand the technology frontier on an ongoing basis? And so when he talks about what Piketty calls new forms of democratic control of capital, he raises this question of what is the new workforce going to look like? And of course, that raises questions of what new forms of labor organizing will be and how we will restructure the economy, if we can indeed do that at this point, um, to become more equitable both for the people who are actually producing uh, for the economy as well as some of the you know, overall structures that govern how public resources are used. And that does it for this week. We will return in another two weeks, according to our new biweekly schedule. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us at hashtag belabored on Twitter, or you can email us story ideas, feedback, critiques, books you think we should read at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.